So uh, how many times this year have you looked around and said, what in the world is going on? You know that experience? What in the world is going on? You should, you should probably think that every once in a while. What in the world is going on? And I commend to you the, the Word of God, because unless you understand the Word of God, you will never really understand what's happening in the world. God alone can communicate to us from a heavenly perspective what's going on. And we're preaching, if you're regular here, you know that we're preaching through a book of the Bible. We're preaching through the last book of the Bible. That in itself ought to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. That's pretty exciting. You're preaching through the last book of the Bible, and most people know that Revelation is the most symbol-laden book in the Bible. It's full of symbols. And Revelation 12 is where we are today as we preach through the Revelation. And Revelation 12 is the most symbol-laden chapter of the most symbol-laden book in the Bible. Even in this chapter, full of mysterious symbols, it is really obvious what is going on. And when you understand it, then you will understand with great clarity what is happening in your world. And you alone will understand. Only those who understand what's revealed here will really understand what's happening in the world. And it helps to know what in the world is going on. The Bible explains our world, seen and unseen. The Bible explains our world, good and bad. The Bible explains our world, beautiful and ugly. The Bible explains our world, holy and evil. And it's only the people who really know the book and believe the book and understand the book who understand the world they're living in. And so the way to understand the world and to live successfully in it is to, is to know your Bible. So I commend you for watching. I, I commend you for attending today on this cold winter day and bringing your Bible. Here's the idea. It's a great idea to get your own copy of the Bible and then to mark it up and to be very familiar with it, you know, spatially where things are on the page and stuff. But people that have walked with the Lord for a long time, like my grandparents who are with the Lord now, my grandparents Shipley, my grandpa Shipley was a quiet man. And, and when he died, they passed his few things out. He didn't have much, but he had a number of Bibles. I got a number of my grandfather's Bibles. And I can see that even though he was not a perfect man, he was a man who clung to the Lord and faithfully attended church and faithfully studied his Bible. And he had his own Bibles that he marked up and he put little notes in them. They say, you know, you've heard this little quip, a Bible that's worn out usually belongs to a person who isn't spiritually worn out, that is. You, you want to have your own copy of the Bible. You may use electronic devices. I do that a lot, and they're very useful. You may carry that. That's fine. Uh, but if you didn't bring a copy of the Bible today, we also have just purchased new Bibles for the pew so that if you happen to want to follow along, you can just reach up, take that pew Bible, and, and, uh, and uh, you can turn to the last book of the Bible. It's in the 900s, I think, page 900 and something, in Revelation 12. You can actually follow along because what I'm going to do today 
is I'm going to just give an explanation of every verse. I'm going to, 17 verses, it won't take me too long. It will we'll be done before noon. And, but I'm going to explain every verse. But more importantly, so, and there, there are three chunks you want to kind of watch for. There are some characters in the story. There's a story that's going to unfold, and it's crazy, amazing. And there are three main characters. Uh, it, actually, a woman, a child, and a dragon. How interesting is that? And you're going to see those main characters introduced in verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6 then introduce these three main characters that are going to be acting in the story. And it kind of goes back before time. And it sets up what's going to happen in verses 7 through 17. The second chunk, starting in verse 7, talks about a war. And this war is obviously in heaven and it's during the tribulation. In Revelation, you have a book that unfolds in chronological order with little pauses in between the chronological unfolding of the book. In other words, this happens, then this happens next, then this happens next. And it's almost in perfect chronological order, except every once in a while there's an interruption that kind of gives an overview that helps you kind of get your breath because it's such staggering, amazing, actually scary stuff that every once in a while you need to take your breath and go, what's going on? And, and it orients you and it usually takes the scene from heaven. And in chapter 12, you have one of those pauses. If you remember, there are, uh, there's a scene in heaven where there are seven, there's a, there's a scroll with seven seals. And as the scroll is unfolded, things happen on the earth, especially in chapters 6 through 18, which describe a period of time called the Great uh, the Tribulation. The last three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. And the Bible talks about that frequently in a number of places, but it's described in a lot of detail, in a lot of really scary, sobering detail, in chapters 6 through 18. And there, it's there, there for a reason. God doesn't want this to happen to us and us not know what's going on. So you have this, but during that time of, of, of horrible judgment that's poured out, symbolic seals are open and judgments come on the earth. The last seal contains seven trumpets that sound. When that seal is open, there are seven angels in heaven in this vision of John. And when they sound the trumpet, another judgment comes on the earth. And when the last trumpet is sounded in this vision that John has, seven bowls are poured out. And they come really swift and violently on the earth. That's yet to come. But right now, we're going to get introduced in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 to a handful of characters that if we understand them, we understand what's happening in the cosmos. In other words, what's happening in heaven and hell and on earth and all of the, the created uh, area of the, of, the, of the universe, the cosmos. These are the key players and they're given symbolic likenesses, but they're real beings and real entities. A am I making sense? Are you tracking with me kind of? And I would recommend too that if you, you know, I'm going to say things that you're going to go, huh, that confuses me, or I have more questions. That's good. It's supposed to work that way because digging in this book should be like a lifelong uh, interest of yours. And the more you read it, the more your heart will be oriented to the verities of God, the truths of God. The more that you read this book and obey it and believe it, the more your heart will be set like your heart is supposed to be set on the things that you can count on that God says are true. You might be wrestling with depression. If you're wrestling with depression, you have my great sympathy. If you're wrestling with anxiety or depression, can I just tell you, we love you, we sympathize with you. Many of us struggle with that too. And many of our loved ones struggle with that too. 
And it's such a great mystery, I wish I could fix it for people. And I can't do that. But one thing I can say is, bear yourself in the Word of God. And when the truth of God changes your very soul through the work of the Holy Spirit, then perhaps God will bring you light. And one day he will deliver you from all fear and all sadness and all depression. And maybe you struggle with temptation. And you're so grieved that over and over again you fall to the same sins. And I would say to you, get into God's book. It is by being in the book of God and orienting your heart to the things of God that are true that help you overcome those temptations that will crush you and drag you into hell if you don't do something about them. Get into God's book. And this is what we'll do today and just see in this most amazing way there's a war in heaven that happens during the tribulation. That's the next little chunk. Then the third chunk is that that, that war is going to go from heaven to earth. And literally hell opens up onto earth. And the, in the heavenlies where demons, where, where Satan and his demons are, they're going to get cast down to the earth. And now the war that was in heaven is going to be on the earth. And that's what's described in this. So again... What you're going to see is the first six verses are describing the three characters that are introduced in chapter 12. There are other characters in chapter 13 and 14. And then in the next, the middle chunk, it's going to be the war that happens in heaven during the tribulation. And the last chunk is going to be the war that spills out on earth during the tribulation. So watch for that now as I read to you these uh, verses from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was carrying, crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven crowns, diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so that's the, that introduces those first three characters. Who are they? Who is this woman? Who is this dragon? Who is this child? It's pretty clear when we study it and we compare Scripture to Scripture. But let's look now at what happens. So that this chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, describe the basic characters and something that happened in the past. But chapter 12 and verses 7 and, and following are going to describe something that happens during the tribulation. You notice the change of time in verse 7 where it says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. He was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. That would be the dragon and his demons. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, uh, hint, hint, this is the key part of the passage. 
I heard a loud voice from heaven. And now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. May I insert commentary. Watch what the devil does every time he gets handed a temporary defeat. He goes after more enemies in great wrath. This is what happens, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she was to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, and the woman and the earth opened uh, help, the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, now that's interesting. So in verse one, you have a sign who is a, a woman, and the woman is going to give birth to a child, and the dragon is going to try to kill him. And if you were paying attention, you know the dragon was identified right in the passage as Satan. And if you've been to Sunday school, you probably know that the one that it says in Psalm 2 will rule the nations with a rod of iron is Jesus. Good answer. So you have Satan, and you have the child as Jesus. The question is a little bit more difficult to untangle. Who is the woman? And you remember, with symbolism in Revelation, one of the things you want to do is you want to see immediately, is the symbol defined in the immediate context? Which, it, like the dragon, later on it says, it's Satan. So you've got that. You know the dragon is Satan. And, and, and we, is the symbol then not defined in the immediate context? Is the symbol decoded in the extended context? In other words, somewhere else in Revelation. A little bit later on, we're going to see that, this, that, that, that the description of the devil is clarified in chapter 13 and verse 1. There's a little bit more description when it says the ten heads and the seven horns and the seven crowns and such. But you'll see in the extended context. And you see that, there, so in other words, if you want to know, when I was a 17-year-old boy, I pastored a little church in the country. It, it, it sounds bigger than it was. It's just a little church in the country, and I would go to school, and I, would, I was a senior in high school, and I would run home on Wednesday night, and I decided the people are all interested in Revelation, so I will learn Revelation while I teach them. That's only a 17-year-old could have that much chutzpah, right? I, I just, okay, I'm going to teach Revelation. But I remember that I would run home on Wednesday night, and I had a little typewriter table at the end of my bed, and I had these commentaries by trusted people that, that were published by Moody Bible Institute, where I want to go to school. And I said, and I read, what did they say this? And I remember this passage thinking, okay, I can see the dragon is Satan, and I can see the child is Jesus, but who is the woman? Who is the woman? What's interesting in the Bible is that in Revelation, 
you notice that there are women given, there are, there are symbolic women in Revelation. There are four symbolic women in Revelation. One symbolic woman in Revelation is called Jezebel. And Jezebel, how many of you have named a daughter Jezebel? Any Jezebels in the house today? Now, why is that? Because Jezebel is symbolic for the pagan world system in Revelation, and that's pretty clear. Then there's a scarlet woman, a harlot, a whore, it says in Revelation is 17. This would not be good either. And she is symbolic of the apostate church or a false religious system in the end time. And there always have been, and there always will be, false religious systems. And in the book of Revelation, the false religious system is called a great whore, not a bride, but a harlot. Sorry for the harsh language. I'm just reading the Bible here. And then there is in chapter 19, praise be unto God, the bride of Christ, a symbolic woman who is the bride of Christ. The church, that's right. All the smart people said, the church. Now you have another group of people that are clearly identified throughout Scripture, and they are the focus of much of Scripture. You have another group of people that from the beginning to the end of Scripture are the focus of much of Scripture. And they're symbolically recognized as a woman in Revelation. And this is the woman we're talking about. The woman is Israel. Now, the reason that we know the woman is Israel is by process of elimination, but also because when you broaden the context and you think, who are these people, the original audience of the ones that received these, this letter, what was their point of reference? They would have had, their Bible would have been the Old Testament. And there are 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So if you really want to decode Revelation, you want to be a real student of the Old Testament, and there's only one place in the Bible that describes a woman symbolically in the same way this woman is symbolically described, and it's in Joseph's dream. If you remember, they're in 37 of uh, Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. And that would have come to the mind of the original reader. The, the original reader would have recognized that this story is about Israel and Jesus and the devil. And so the Jewish people are key players in the cosmic conflict of the ages. And this always affects what happens in heaven and earth. And can I remind you, if you were an unbeliever and you don't believe the Bible and you don't have any orientation about the things of the Lord and you turn on the evening news, why would it be over and over and over again the focus of world attention is on the Middle East and on Israel and on her right to exist and the miracle of her rebirth as a nation it is a fascinating thing. How do you know the Bible is true? You could say, well, there's evidence for the resurrection. And there is. And we can study that. Evidence is for the resurrection. Prove the Bible is true. Or you could study the manuscript evidence for the Bible and the amazing miracle of God's providence in the transmission of Scripture. You could see all how Scripture portions are collated throughout the world in a computer and how, they, how much agreement they have. And it would be a faith-strengthening thing. Or you could do like Lois and I have done, and you could travel to the, to the Middle East, you could travel to the land of Israel, and you could lay eyes on all the places the Bible talks about. The geography of the Bible, it's faith-strengthening to see that the Bible's geography isn't like stories and myths that are made up. 
It's real time and place. Isn't that the way it was? Like, this is the place that Jesus, where Jesus' feet stood. This is the place that, where Jesus adopted this as his hometown. This is where Jesus made bread and, and fish for breakfast for the fishermen. This is, a, this is a real place. This would be faith-strengthening. And one might come to believe, like Sir William Ramsey did, when he traveled around the world and looked at the geography of the Bible, he was a skeptic who came to, to robust faith in Jesus Christ. Or you could study the archaeology of the Bible, the things in the world that still you can dig up, and they confirm the truth of the Bible. But today, I want to suggest a different way that you could come to trust that the Bible is true, and that is just simply this: what, what pro- students of Bible prophecy call the super sign of Israel, the existence of the nation of Israel, the resilience of the nation of Israel. Alexander the Great asked his chaplain to give him one commanding evidence of the existing God. And his chaplain, without any hesitation, said, The amazing Jew, your majesty, the amazing Jew. According to Jesus in Luke chapter 21 and verses 23 and 24, it says, There'll be a great distress in the land, wrath against his people. They'll fall by the sword, his people, the Jews, right? They'll be taken as prisoners to all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Israel will survive a great prolonged persecution, and it has. And it will be a key player in the very end of time. Take your Bible this afternoon and read Romans 9 through 11. Israel is not replaced in God's economy. God is still going to keep his promises, his covenants to Israel. And you see this happening in the world today, and so that's what you have If you want to understand the world, you want to understand a key player is the devil and his demons. And obviously, Jesus, the child, and his angels, and Michael, the archangel, and his other angels. And the nation of Israel. You can't understand Revelation without understanding what's going on with the nation of Israel. The Jewish people are key players in this cosmic conflict of the ages that happens between heaven and earth, including the dragon, Satan, the child, Jesus, Michael, the archangel, angels and demons, and the woman who is Israel. God has a future for Israel. It's an amazing thing to study this. Mark Hitchcock, who is a favorite Bible scholar of mine, calls the existence of Israel in its regathering God's super sign of the end times. Israel's in the headlines almost every day. The psalmist said in Psalm 121 and verse 4, he who watches over Israel will never slumber, will never sleep. Those that are near to the heart of God understand the nature of God's covenant that he made with Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 12 when he says, if whoever you bless, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse, the Abrahamic covenant. You remember the hiding place story? Corey Ten Boom, who's a Dutch woman, lived in the watchmaker shop. Her dad was a watchmaker named Casper. And they were hiding Jewish people because they were God's people during the Holocaust, right? And they came along and imprisoned Corey and her sister and her father. And Corey survived to tell the story, but her sister died and her dad died. But somebody asked him one day, about him hiding the Jewish people. And he said, if I die, Casper Ten Boom said, if I die in prison, it will be an honor for me to have given my life for God's ancient people, the Jews. In verse 2, the woman gives birth to a child in travail. Israel is constantly persecuted in travail. 
in bringing Jesus into the world. We could go back through the Old Testament and we could see places where Satan over and over again orchestrated ways to try to wipe out the seed of the woman, this, this child, even from the, what they call the proto-evangelium. It's a fancy word for the first place the gospel is hinted at in Genesis chapter 3. And, and it says that the, Satan will be crushed by the, by the woman. Satan has tried to wipe out the godly seed. And he hates this godly seed. He hates Israel. Another sign appears, verse 3, a dragon, a great red, seven heads, seven, ten horns, seven diadems. The color red represents death, mortal danger. It's warlike. The seven heads represent seven consecutive world enemies, uh, empires. You'll see this when we get to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 10. It's decoded there. And so Satan has some influence with these world empires that come one after another. Many Bible scholars also see because there's a vision in Daniel where in the end time there's a ten toes in the, in the feet of this image and the image represents successive world empires and the last world empire is a ten-nation confederacy. And so sometimes Bible scholars think, oh, Satan is, this is a symbol that Satan is very bright and very dangerous and very powerful and he is the head of a great world uh, dominating power that's going to oppose God's people in the end time. And this is what it's saying. The diadems, the crowns, are symbolic of, obviously, of political or national power. And so even if a child read this, he or she would say, this is a very bad being and a very powerful being. Would you agree? If you read that, you think this is not some, something that you want to stumble into after dark. Clearly, this is a symbolic, bad, powerful being, a very dangerous spiritual enemy in verse 3. Verse 4 describes the fall of the original fall of Satan and the fall of a third of the angels with him and his desire to destroy the child there. So you see, read it again. So his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Now later on, they're going to be and often angels are identified as stars. A little bit later in the text, you see, specifically says it's angels. So when Satan originally fell, was cast out of heaven after an opposition to God, he took a third of the angels with him. They are our demons. Some of them, most of them are in the heavenlies and they were on the earth. And some of them have been consigned to hell. It's surprisingly, Satan hasn't been to hell yet. He isn't in hell. Satan is in the heavenlies. Satan has access to the throne of God. And someday when he gets sent to hell, he's not going to rule hell. He's going to be an object of punishment there in hell, according to, according to the Bible. But in chapter, uh, chapter 12 and verse 4, it's a description of the fall of Satan where he takes a third of the angels with him and he has with him a desire to destroy the child. Um, before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And this is a symbol of how Satan has always, had diff always wanted to destroy the child or Christ. And, and even one example I can give you for sake of time would be the story from the Christmas story, if you recall, that Herod tries to wipe out all the male children in Bethlehem. And there is that, that what's referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. Where innocents are slaughtered, Satan is behind that. And so it is even today in our nation. And so in verse 5, clearly this is Christ who rules the nations with a rod of iron, which is really clear. Anybody who knows uh, Psalm 2 knows that. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. 
But her child was caught up to God into his throne. And after Jesus had his earthly ministry, and after he died on the cross, and after he was buried, and after he rose again, what did he do? He ascended into heaven. It's this, like, this is where he is, where he is now. And he's about to come back. But first, there's this great conflict. And this is what is being described. Verse 6 describes the woman, Israel, fleeing to the wilderness, to a place that God prepared for her. And I would just interrupt to remind you that God is going to call you through difficulty. He's going to call you through hardship. He's going to call you to suffer. He may call you to die. But in, along with that, that he calls you to go through, he will provide. This is what he does for his people, Israel. And so, this is another reference to three and a half years. Earlier, you had a different way of referring to three and a half years, giving the number of the days. And now you have time and time and half a time, another way of referring to three and a half years. Throughout the Bible, this time, the second half, this, this outpouring of wrath in the second half of the tribulation is mentioned over and over again in different places, almost as if God wants to make sure that we don't ever misunderstand this is a literal time. So the tribulation is described throughout the Bible. The period of time described in Scripture sometimes is described as 42 months. You remember in chapter 11, that's how it was described in chapter 13 and verse 5. Or, or as time, time, and half a time, as in this passage in verse 14. Or sometimes it's called three and a half years, as in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. There's a consistent reference to a final three and a half years of a prophecy that Daniel gave, a 70 weeks of years prophecy that he gave, a famous prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. But that will be preaching for another day. And then obviously this time of tribulation is something God wants us to know about. Israel is the focus of this tribulation, especially the second half. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And God wants God's people to understand about this or he wouldn't have given us all these chapters in Revelation chapter 6 through 18 for us to study the tribulation. I yield to God. It is his book. I didn't choose to preach this many sermons on the tribulation. God chose for, to give us this much material on the tribulation. But it helps us understand the good and the evil in the world. Now let's look at verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12. And this might be one of those at noon we'll just pull over and stop and pick up next week. So don't freak out. But war in heaven, verses 7 through 12. Michael and his angels fight with a dragon and his angels there in verse 7. You see that? Now war arise in heaven. This is the tribulation now. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fight back. Who wins? The good guys. He was defeated. Satan was defeated, the dragon. There's no longer any place for them in heaven. Now the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent called the devil, and Satan, deceiver of the whole world, thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Say amen. Say amen part, yeah. Uh, one, and then verse 8, the devil and his demons are defeated. Verse 9, they're cast out. Notice all the various names of Satan, the devil, the slander, Satan, the adversary, the accuser of brothers and sisters. He's cast down to the earth. We'll back up and we'll, we'll cover the career of, of Satan sometime. It's different than you think. This week I was reading the Screwtape Letters, a wonderful, wonderful book by C.S. Lewis that was a fictional example of, of letters sent back and forth from a senior demon to a junior demon, and it's full of rich, rich scriptural truth. But one of the things it does, not to criticize, but one of the things it does, though, 
is it probably doesn't communicate the great horror that we ought to have when we think about what a horrifying, evil, wicked enemy that we face. Without Christ's help, we would be immediately destroyed. He hates you. He hates your wife. He hates your husband. He hates your children. He hates your grandchildren. He hates this church with an evil, evil hatred. You ever watch a movie that was bad and then it got lots worse? Let me tell you what they did. They introduced a character who's bad and then they had him do something incredibly bad, right? That's how that works. You got a really bad person and you're watching this movie and it's fairly interesting and then all of a sudden he or she does something incredibly evil. And now it's like, this person is really bad. Because what's happening here? God wants us to understand the devil isn't to be understood physically as in red tights and a pitchfork. This is symbolically a way to say he's powerful, he's smart, and he's deadly, and he's active in the world, and he wants to destroy you. This is war. First it's war in heaven, but then it's going to become war on earth. Verses 9, 10, and through 12 are, are the heart of this. It's the loud voice that comes from heaven, and you have another scene, as you often have in Revelation, of worshipful rejoicing in heaven. This is worth our time. Let's read it again, and let's hear it as coming from a voice from heaven that's unidentified, and yet he says, I want you to write this down. So it's the voice of God or an angel that's saying, I heard a voice in heaven. John is seeing a vision, right? He hears a voice, and here's what the voice says. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with a great wrath, because he knows his time is short. This is what the voice from heaven has said. Can I give you a little secret? In your listening to a message, always watch for the path to the cross. A good message always has a path to the cross in it. Where is the pastor going to go to the cross? Where is the preacher going to go to the cross? Well, here it is. This is, the, this is the Christ. This is the path of the cross. In the middle of this great, horrific, frightening conflict in the heavens, Satan is going to be cast down to the earth. He won't be immediately destroyed. He'll do horrible things on earth first, eventually be cast into hell. But he's cast out of heaven. And they're rejoicing in heaven. This voice is saying, write this down. Write this down. There's great rejoicing in heaven because the accuser of the, and it's appropriate to call it brothers and sisters in the original language here. The accuser of brothers and sisters has been cast down. Who is this accuser? Who's this red dragon? This is the devil. This is Satan. He is the accuser. He's the one who loves to remind you of your past sin. He's the one who loves to remind you of who you are without Christ. And he continually does this. How, how frequently does he do it? According to the Bible, he does it day and night. He's unceasing in his accusation against you. You accuse other people and you bring up their sin against them, not in order to teach the law of God and show them the path of the cross. But if you bring up 
a loved one sin against him, you are not on God's side. You are working for the enemy right there. He's the accuser of the brethren who brings people's past sin against them day and night. How do they conquer him? How do they conquer him? According to the Bible, because Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood. By the blood of the lamb, the symbol for Jesus frequently used in Revelation is a slain lamb, a sacrifice for our sin. God sent his son, our savior Jesus, as a sacrifice for our dark sin. You are a sinner. You have broken God's law. You know you've done things you feel guilty about. The only way out for you is not to overcome your bad stuff with your good stuff. It's to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus who already paid the price by dying for your sin. This is the promise of the Bible. How will you overcome evil in your life? How will you overcome temptation in your life? How will you overcome even the bad things that you've done in your past that you feel guilty about? There's only one way to overcome that. That is through the blood of the Lamb, through the death, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and that you have a testimony that you believe it and that you're willing to die. I'm ready to take his side. I believe in Jesus. I know he died for my sin. I'm trusting in his shed blood to forgive me of my sin. I have a testimony that that's what I believe, and I'm ready to suffer, and I'm ready to die. These are the ones who will overcome in spiritual warfare. That's how you can overcome in spiritual warfare. Are you a child of God? Are you? Because the Bible says you're either an enemy of God or you're a child of God. And if you're not yet a child of God because you believed in Jesus then you are a victim of the enemy, but you too are on the enemy's side. Can I suggest that you change sides today and be over on God's side? You say, who is on the Lord's side? I am on the Lord's side. I, I say, I'm on the Lord's side. Who believes in Jesus? Say, I believe in Jesus. Who wants to be forgiven of their sin? Say, I want to be forgiven of my sin. Who feels the guilt and weight and shame and condemnation of your sin on your heart? Say, I do. God and Satan agree that you deserve to go to hell. But God says, I will send my own son, Jesus, who's the lamb that's slain. And a plan that I had before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And now that coming to its conclusion, everyone will see, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the Bible teaches you can be saved today. You can believe. You can go over on God's side and you can believe today. We're going to come back to this passage, but I want to give you some applications before we quit. And we'll give you four of them and we'll go over these again. But four things that you should be thinking about. Number one, this is serious. It's not a fantasy. Satan attacked Jesus. Satan attacked the Jews. Satan attacked the church. Satan is attacking you and your family and the people that you love. This is serious stuff. It's not a fantasy. Second, it's an invisible, but it's real. The invisible world that we don't see is described to us here in the Bible. We don't see it, but it's real. You probably intuitively know there's more to what's going on in the world than what a person can see or one they can, they, they can reproduce like scientifically. There's a spiritual world that drives the, there's an invisible world that drives the visible world. There's a there's a spiritual world that drives the, the material world. You cannot ever try to understand what's happening in the material world unless you understand what's happening in the spiritual world. And so, number one, this is serious. Number two, it's invisible, but it's real. Number three, it's looming, it's imminent. In other words, 
The Bible, the way it sweeps through this story in chapter 12, starts from the beginning of time and goes to the end of time. Satan is always active. He hasn't just been active in the past. He's not just going to be active in the future to the end. He's active right now. It's imminent. It's happening right now. It's looming. It's not just history. It's, it's past, present, and future. So this week I met with uh, one of the men of our church, uh, a, a, a leader in our church, a godly leader, and we had breakfast. And I just said to him, how are you doing? How are you doing? And the reason I ask him is because I've been asking a lot of people that because it's like tough times. A lot of people aren't going to church because they're afraid they're going to get sick and die. And, and, and even if we are going to church, we're not, we don't have the fellowship that we normally enjoy. And it could be, and I have a feeling as a pastor, it would be really easy to kind of slide backward in your fellowship with the Lord. And I said to him, how are you doing? And he said, well, well at first, you know, I kind of, and these aren't the words you use, but I kind of stumbled. But, but he says, but then I realized what was happening. And he said, I got this book of theology. And he said, I began to read about the goodness of God and the grace of God. And then he said, I began to read about the, he said, sovereignty of God, which means he's in control of everything, his power of God. He said, I got this thick theology book, and I started to read about the goodness of God and the grace of God and the power of God. And I want to say to you, get out the book, read about the goodness of God, because Satan is going to try to get you to pick a, a different way and tempt you to believe that God is not good, that what God has for you is not best. He's going to do that to you. Get out the book and never let anybody allow you, cause you, tempt you to doubt that God's way is the best way, that God is good. And don't ever, so Satan can't, so Satan will come along and he'll tempt you to say, God isn't good, choose something else. What's that called? That's called temptation. But then what he'll do, he'll come along with accusation. Are you tracking with me? You can expect Satan to come along with temptation and say, choose this, even though God says it's the wrong way, choose this way. Then when you, and you all have experience with this, right? Once you yield to temptation, what does he do? He come, you know, you all have experience with this. He comes along with accusation. He goes, I, I know who you are, and I saw what you did, and you're going to hell. And you know, everything he said there is right, except he doesn't want to tell you about Jesus. Never be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. That's what you do when you're tempted. Or the grace of God, that's, when you do when you, that's what you do when you yield to the accuser. Don't let Satan get you to believe that God's ways aren't best. Don't let Satan get you to believe that Jesus isn't eager to forgive you and cleanse you and give you a brand new life and let you start all over again, over and over again. Because the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, I believe, and I'm willing to die. I love not my life unto death. So, number one, it's serious. Number two, it's inevitable and real. Number three, it's looming, it's imminent, it's upon us. Number four, it's very deceitful, as I mentioned. And so, I want to suggest to you that what you do is you say through over and over again, you remind yourself when you come face to face with the guilt that you have, but Jesus died for my sin. Do you want that to be true? That is true. But Jesus died for my sin. I believe, I trust Jesus that he died for my sin. And then he's going to come along and he's going to say, let me remind you of who you are and let me remind you of what you've done. And then you say, I've overcome him by the blood of the lamb. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers? Other lives to bring, the old hymn says. Choose you to stay 
whom you will serve. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for all in the house today and those who are watching online, that they would step across the line and follow you. That when you, they would hear your voice calling to them, who is on the Lord's side? And they would say, I am on the Lord's side. Choose you this day whom you will serve. They would say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Give us, I pray, victory in this warfare that we face against Satan and against his angels. We would be, Lord, uh, faithful to you clean, pure, following you, cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you go home today, I want you to know that we're going to have people here at the front. I'm going to stay here in the front today. If you'd like to talk with me, I'd like to talk with you. I want to welcome you to come forward, talk with us. and We'll help you if you need some spiritual counsel. We'll be glad to give it to you. God bless you. Have a good day. Speaking. 